welcome to Humans and Magic, the show that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. This is episode 81 with Ross Miriam. Ross is a mathematician, MTG grinder slash writer, co-host of Versus Live on Star City Games, and the co-host of MTG Rants, an excellent Magic the Gathering podcast that he does with Tan and Grace. Ross is also a self-described Marxist-Leninist and Utah jazz fan. Needless to say, he's a man with many different interests, and that's really what led me to seek Ross out for a conversation. In this chat, we touch on a bunch of things from Ross's past and present and future, and just to make it kind of interesting, because you may have heard Ross in his content or doing other podcasts, we try to go into some topics that he doesn't usually discuss. So I think that part is the interesting part of Humans and Magic and why we do a show like this. And I hope you enjoy the listen. And before we get into the actual conversation, I just want to give a few shout outs. I don't usually give shout outs before the episode, but I feel like it's really warranted. I want to shout out first of all, Tan and Grace for connecting me to Ross and making this interview possible. Secondly, I want to shout out two of Ross's good friends, Chris Marshall and Todd Anderson, for giving me a lot of insight into Ross as a human being, first and foremost. And that helped me drive the conversation in a way that was more rich and engaging. Ross is truly a wonderful person in the community. And as one of his friends said, Ross makes me want to be a better human being. So without further ado, this is Humans and Magic with Ross Miriam. Hey Ross, how's it going? I am doing well. Thanks for having me. You just got back from playing some ball today. How was that? It was, uh, in, in one sense, it was very good because we hadn't played in a couple of weeks. So it always feels good to get back out there. And then in another sense, it was terrible because we hadn't played in a couple of weeks. And so we were not good. No problem. I'm sure you guys will, will pick it up over time. But I understand there's an important game for you happening tomorrow that you're not actually playing, but you will be partaking in, participating in in some way, right? I will, I will watch every single minute. I can guarantee you that. I'm a big Utah Jazz fan, uh, have been for many years now. And the Jazz are currently in, in the second round of the playoffs. They are now down three games to two to the Los Angeles Clippers. And game six will be in Los Angeles tomorrow. So it is the Jazz literally playing for their season. And if they win, they will get game seven at home. And basically, I'm just praying for... Mike Conley, and now actually Donovan Mitchell to even play. Don's been playing hurt with the ankle injury that he suffered in uh, Indiana a month, month and a half ago. How did you become a Utah Jazz fan? Because as I understand it, you grew up in Connecticut, no? You were born and raised in yeah. Connecticut? I, I, have, I have no connection to the state of Utah. In fact, the, the very first time that I, uh, that I went, I actually flew there the November before the pandemic, so November of 2019, which is really right when it was starting to get picked up globally. I guess they've traced it to that. They didn't uh, identify it in Wuhan until late December, early January. But so in November of, of 2019, I flew to uh, 
to Salt Lake City and took in two games because they were doing a back-to-back where they were playing Golden State and uh, and New Orleans, the Pelicans. And I thought like, oh, that'll be cool. I'll get to see Steph Curry and I'll get to see the next day. Uh, it'll be Derek Favors' return because that was the year that Favors had gone to New Orleans. And, you know, he's a longtime jazz man. He's a fan favorite. So I'll get to see him come back. Uh, I believe three days after I purchased my ticket, uh, Steph Curry broke his hand. And about a week after that, Derek Favors got injured and he didn't even make the trip. And Rudy got injured uh, the first of the two games. It didn't play the second of them. It was kind of a shit show, but it was fun to be in the arena. Um, But yeah, I, I have no real connection to the state of Utah, but what happened was I was getting into sports um, in, in the late nineties. So I was born in the late eighties. So, you know, I was nine, 10 years old when I started, you know, really following sports and, and finding a fandom. And it was always weird to me that we were just fans of teams based on where you grew up. Um, and, you know, we didn't have pro- professional sports teams really in, in Connecticut. We had the Hartford Whalers who moved to uh, Carolina. They're now the Carolina Hurricanes in the, in the NHL. Uh, they moved in the late nineties sometime and I was never a big hockey fan. And so like in where I'm from in, in central Connecticut, it's sort of half Boston fans and half New York fans. And it was weird to me that everybody just roots for the team that where they happen to be born. That was, that didn't really jive with me. And I always wanted to root for the underdog. And so when I got into basketball, everybody is all, all everybody's a Michael Jordan fan. So I just said, well, who's who's Jordan playing against? And in 97 and 98, he was playing against the Utah Jazz. So if I got if I chosen my team in 1996, I, I would have been a Sonics fan. <laughs> and uh, and that would have been really painful when they moved to Oklahoma City. So uh, instead, I got to be a jazz fan. And, uh, you know, I I stayed loyal to them even after the Stockton and Malone era ended. I remember watching a lot of the the Darren Williams, Carlos Boozer era. That's really when I got into following basketball. Like I was, I was less of a basketball fan in, in the late nineties, early two thousands. I was more baseball and football. Then it became more, um, a little more basketball in the late two thousands. And I, I started becoming, following it really closely um, after that team disbanded and the, and the rebuild happened um, first under Ty Corbin and, the, and then under Quinn Snyder. Uh, you know, when, when they had Gordon Hayward and Derek Favors and Ennis Cantor and Trey Burke, and that was supposed to be our, our core four and, and everything was set for the future. I, I remember the draft where they traded up for Trey Burke and it had been three, like three years, I think, since uh, Darren Williams was traded and the Jazz just had not had a remotely close to quality point guard since then. It was this like rolling trove of over the hill guys like 36 year old Jamal Tinsley, 34 year old John Lucas, the third Mo Williams for a year and just not quality starting point guards in the NBA. And it was like, okay, all we need is the point guard. We got our center. We got our power forward. We got our wing player. We just need a good point guard to get them all the ball. And Trey Burke had that great run at Michigan to the final four. And he was the college player of the year. And we had two, two like mediocre first round picks and they just traded both of them to move up to nine and took Trey Burke. And I was like, yeah, we're all set. This is our team. And like three years later, none of them are on the team again. We have a completely different core and it's way better. And that's when I kind of learned that like, that's not really how things go. Um, you know, it takes a while and, and you have a lot of, a lot of misses along the way. And, you know, eventually you find your diamonds in the rough and you build around them. Like, 
they got Rudy a 30th. Rudy was actually drafted the same year as Trey Burke. So like I barely knew Rudy Gobert existed because I was so excited about getting Trey. Uh, and it turns out that, yeah, the Jazz did draft the, their franchise player uh, or the, the that year. It just wasn't the guy I thought it was. I respect the heck out of that because I think as a true sports fan or fan of a team, you got to be able to like stay with the team through ups and downs, right? You're not just like following one player like LeBron James as he moves across different teams. Like now that's my team, you know, like it sounds like you really went through some dark times as a jazz fan. I I remember the jazz had some like bright spots here and there, you know, Darren Williams, like Kirilenko, like there were some like, they never had like that season where they put it all together until now. So that's why I'm really happy to see, I guess maybe the long-term investments the Jazz are are making, like paying off because like even Rudy, as you said, right? Like he wasn't expected to be anything. And the guy had no offensive game whatsoever to, to get to where he is now. is just amazing. Like just a, just player development and all that and his own yeah. mindset, obviously. So he, he is the first person to have both played in the G league and then be named an all-star. Right. He's the first one. He got sent down to the G league his rookie year. He couldn't, couldn't hold a basketball. I mean, his, his hands still aren't, you know, they're not excellent. Uh, they're better than he gets credit for. Uh, but he, when he was a rookie, like he could not hold a basketball. <laughs> like it was, it was bad uh, when he would play. He played like 10 minutes a night for half the season and got sent down to the G league. But yeah, the, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't like to critique a lot of people's fandoms um, as long as, you know, you, you stay consistent with it. If you want to be the fan, a fan of one player, you know, then, then you, you're the fan of that player. And then when, you know, when that person yeah. retires, maybe you pick another one, that's fine. But to me, the, one of the most interesting things about sports, especially team sports is the team building aspect of it. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't, I, I would play like Madden, but I wouldn't play a lot of the actual in-game stuff. I actually just played franchise mode and would like simulate the season and do all the off season stuff mm-hmm. where you're like making trades and doing the draft and, you know, hiring the right coach and making the system. That was the, st- that X's and O's stuff was always really interesting to me. And so when I'm following a team, I'm following to get a dose of that. Like mm-hmm. I want to know what the team, what my team system is, what the strengths and weaknesses of the players are. I want to, you know, have an idea of where, what the holes are, where they can improve the roster and, you know, f- I'm sort of following the GM, um, right. as if, um, but you know, other people might follow for, for completely different reasons. I'm not a big fan of just bandwagon people who just, you know, root for the team that's, that's winning. You know, I, me neither. that's parade, why, I, but that, that's why I mentioned that, but this is really yeah. interesting to me because it shows that even at a young age, you were at least in the sports sense, like you were kind of a contrarian or you're like rooting for the underdog because it would have been so easy to root for MJ and the Bulls as everybody did, right? The other thing that's interesting is that you sort of had more interest in the business of sports as a GM or a virtual GM even back then. So did you always feel like you were like a little bit different from the kids around you or how how, how was that environment, <laughs> you know? Uh, I mean, I just... I think everybody is a different in, 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 you know, we're all so, so much of an individual that we learn, you know, either learn to sort of suppress aspects of yourself because you think they're, you know, not what you should be, or you, or you learn to embrace those aspects of yourself. And fortunately I had a, a supportive family that, that taught me to embrace those things. So when I wanted to do something that was a little bit weird, you know, that they, they supported that. 
you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, my, uh, uh, and my mom would buy like coloring books for, for my siblings. I actually requested that sh instead of a coloring book, uh, I would get a workbook of math problems and I would just do, you know, basic addition, you know, when I was like three or four. And so I would, do, I would just do math by myself for fun. And my mom was like, yeah, that's great. You should do that. <laughs> um, and by, you know, I, lo and behold, by the time I got to kindergarten, I was very accelerated in math. And I'm not entirely sure if like I how just how much natural aptitude I have for the subject or I just liked it and got better at it than most people and then got, you know, kept getting better at it and kept liking doing it. Or I think a lot of people where they get, uh, you know, a lot of people get hung up early in their math education and they just sort of give up and think, well, I'm just one of those people that is bad at math mm -hmm. uh, instead of viewing it like most things as a skill that you can work on. You know, and some people have to work harder than others, just like some people have to work harder than others at anything. Um, but so, you know, to me that like I you know, like I'm sure I felt like I was different, but I never felt like that was a negative thing. So it was just, I am who I am and, and that's fine. And so you, you embrace that and you try to be the best you that you can be. Tell me a bit about your parents, your mom and dad, what were they like or what are they like? Well, uh, so my mom is the nicest person alive, um, sometimes to a fault. Um, you know, she's the kind of person that will strike up conversations with strangers, um, and, and is always trying to help people. Um, and so the, obviously like that, that lends itself pretty well to motherhood of uh, incredibly, incredibly supportive. Um, and uh, my dad, uh, so he, he worked third shift uh, for the majority of his life. Um, so, you know, as, as far as raising us, a lot of the duties fell more to my mom uh, but I've very much grown to appreciate that, that uh, you know, the other side of the equation, the sacrifices that my, my dad also made, um, though he also played a, a pretty pivotal role in, in my early magic career because, uh, because of the fact that he worked late, he would be up late on days that he was off. That was just his schedule. And so when I made the absolutely ridiculous request that I get to go to FNM on Friday and stay and draft afterwards until three in the morning with a bunch of people <laughs> that they didn't know when I was 13, yeah. they were oddly okay with it. And I would just call my dad from the store phone at three in the morning and say, Hey, can you drive 20 minutes to come get me? And he's like, yeah, that's not a problem at all. Um, mm. So, you know, once again, like, again, just very supportive. I think that's got, that's the, Easily their, their number one attribute as parents, both of them, uh, just being incredibly supportive of their children and also um, not really ever imposing anything on us. They, like, you know, some parents try to control their children's lives and my parents are the, the exact opposite. Um, you know, it was always we're going to let you live and we're here to help you if, if you want it or need it. Um, but, it, you know we know that life is about making mistakes and learning things for yourself. And we're going to let you do that. Um, so to, to me that I think that is, you know, uh, that's a pretty good way of going about things. Certainly a way that I appreciated and still do. Um, and that that's, you know, as far as them, as, as parents, that's, that, that's their, their number one thing. That's great. That's, that's, uh, 
the best thing you can hope for, even though you have don't really have control over who your parents are, but I'm glad that they're supportive. The number one lesson of my adult life is um, how lucky I was with the family that I that I've had. You know, as I you know meet more and more people and and grow, you know meet friends from different backgrounds and different walks of life, I you know when you're growing up, you always think that your family is normal and everyone else is is mostly like you. And you don't really have the perspective as, as, a, as a young child until you, you know, live as an adult. And, and I learned that just how, you know, uh, just how exceptional what I thought was normal as my life uh, uh, was and, and how grateful I, I am to, to have the parents and, and the family that I did. Tell me a bit about your siblings. I, I, I could tell that maybe they were more into the coloring books and the math problems when they were three years old, but uh, what, what were they like? How many siblings do you have the whole nine yards? I have, I have three. Um, I have an older sister, an older brother, and a twin sister. My older... Uh, well, I'll start with my older brother uh, because probably the most influential on my life in, in part because he's the one who taught me to play magic. And uh, so yeah. uh, that, that's a pretty big variable there. Also, someone that uh, I certainly tried to emulate, as a lot of younger brothers do, I saw the path that that he took um, and, and did a, a lot of the same thing, sometimes to my own detriment. Uh, you know, I ended up pl- playing an instrument in band long after I really should have because I did not really enjoy it. Um, but I sort of did it out of inertia. And... Uh, but I, I ended up being very competitive as young, as younger brothers also are. So my brother was a a smart guy, uh, ended up, we're from Middletown, Connecticut, which is where Wesleyan university is, which is a a well-regarded, uh, university, um, usually ranked in, you know, top 20, although those rankings are bullshit. So, um, but a, a, a well-regarded private university here and, uh, our high school had a program that allowed uh, students to take classes at Wesley. Um, so, you know, a lot of places you, you can take classes at like your local community college. You know, we got to take it at a, at a full four-year institution, which is pretty cool. And uh, my brother ended up uh, take, you know, taking an accelerated course in math so that he could take some college level math before he graduated. He ended up uh, going on and getting a degree in, in aerospace engineering. Um, oh, wow, okay. Yeah. I decided to to one up him uh, because I had been taking ma- math at grade up for as long as I can remember, uh, and ended up to the point where I I wasn't gonna. Uh, so what he did was he ended up taking uh, two math classes that you would normally take your junior and senior year. He just took them both his junior year, so that he could free up, free up the the spot in the following year. I was in the I was on track to be able to get through all uh, through calculus as a junior through my third year of high school. And, but I doubled up anyway, my sophomore year, so that I'd have two years to take classes at Wesleyan instead of his one. Um, and, you know, l- largely motivated by just trying to one up him. That's p- pretty common where your older brother is, is sets the benchmark and tries to surpass the benchmark. Um, he ended up uh, resting his head on the fact that he, he was much more athletically gifted than, than I ever was. So, uh, you know, he got that <laughs> side of things. And he, he, he gave me the, the academic side of things. Yeah. And that was sort of the, the, the compromise that we, uh, that we got to. But 
uh, my brother certainly uh, the biggest impact was just instilling competitiveness in me because of that that sibling rivalry, and that that you know has led me to literally you know compete in tournaments for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's largely what I, what I get from him. Um, my uh, my older sister is an, another very just highly supportive uh, you know figure in my life. Uh, so took after my, my parents very much because she's seven years older than I am. Um, so you, you get that more sort of parent child dynamic, uh, more so than siblings. Once the gap gets, gets pretty large, uh, because it's, it's sort of hard to relate on a, on a peer level, um, that way. So that was, uh, mostly her role. Um, and then my twin sister is an interesting case, um, because we were very close when we were young as twins obviously are. Though my mother made the very wise decision of being very um, uh, diligent in making sure that we were separate people and treated as separate people, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're uh, different genders and fraternal twins, so it's not quite the same as when you have identical twins. Um, you know, people people didn't have problems telling us apart. In fact, throughout school, most people didn't realize until we told them that we were even related because we were quite different. Um, me being much louder and her being and uh, her being much quieter. Uh, but we were very close as siblings, which is great to have, especially among our extended family. We didn't see a ton of our extended family, but there were not a lot of other kids who were around my age. Uh, so just having uh, my twin sister around was great. Um, and so very close then, and actually. Um, when I was in when I uh, when I was in fourth grade, I got the opportunity to skip ahead. So I jumped from fourth to sixth um, due to my uh, school system wanting to save money. Um, at least that's my. Oh come on! Uh, it's got to be your point. academic performance as well, right? I mean, that's what allowed them to do the option. So what happened was <laughs> uh, was in, when I was in second grade, my teacher noticed that I was bored in, in math the entire time because I knew everything she was. She was teaching everyone, uh, which is probably just, you know, basic arithmetic or whatever. And she actually, you know, went to the administration in the elementary school and told them we got to do something. And they ended up deciding to let me go to the math class a grade up. So I would leave my classroom, walk to a third grade classroom to which I was assigned, take math with them uh, and, you know, get my grade from that teacher for math and, and whatnot. And so I kept doing that. And once I was in the fourth grade, the school board realized, or the school, the school, not school board, but the school realized that, uh, you know, they couldn't keep doing that the following year because our elementary school is kindergarten through fifth, and then uh, sixth through eight is middle school. And so that, you know, they had a couple options. They could bring someone in to teach me one-on-one, or they could uh, send a bus over and bus me to that school and back just for one class for, you know, 40 minutes or something out of the day. And both of those options are, you know, rather expensive. And the inexpensive option was to, you know, test me in non-math subjects because I knew I was good enough in math and see if I could just skip fifth grade entirely. So they gave me the fifth grade standardized test for that year. I did well enough. They gave me the option. Importantly, my mother literally gave me the option. She, you know, sat me down in the car after she talked to them and said, this is the option that they get, that they gave me. And so I'm giving the option to you. Whatever you want to do is what we'll do. Mm. I, I've known some kids that had the opportunity to skip and their parent parent was just like, no, uh, they didn't think it would be good socially for them. Uh, in some cases, I think that can be true. But my specific case, I was going from fourth to sixth, which is 
uh, we have eight elementary schools in the town. And so they're all matriculating into one middle school. You know, some people around town from other elementary schools through, you know, other things that you do, but there's a lot of people that you don't know. And so everybody's meeting a lot of new people at that time. So it's really, it was a good time for me to skip um, uh, socially. Uh, and so uh, I, I was given the decision and, and uh, snapped it off. I, di I didn't even really think about it. Um, and so at that, at that time, you know, when you're a kid in school, the school year is sort of the benchmark of how old you are, right? It's less that you're 10 or 11 and more that you're a fifth grader or a sixth grader. Um, and so the, the dynamic with my twin sister changed a little bit to where it felt like I was a year older. You know, I had all the, she had all the experiences I did school-wise a year later. Uh, and we were, we were much more separated than that. Like at that, at that time when we were, you know, a grade apart, um, like it, people that really didn't even know we were related. Like they, it was because we were, we were different people. So in, in, in that case, the dynamic shifted and it probably had a good time. You know, we got to be our own people, be a little bit separated at a time where you're really starting to be more social as you're, you know, entering uh, the, the preteen years and then the teen years. So, um, you know, uh, but it was very nice to have someone to be, you know, close to when you're really young and you oftentimes just have a hard time relating to, you know, to other people. Uh, and it's about even people in your own family because the the age gap is is so large. But my my sister is um, my twin sister, you know, w with with me, I was always loud and, and, and boisterous uh, and, you know, and. Uh, she kind of got um, uh, like overshadowed to a sense. And so when we were separated a little bit, it let, let her break out a little bit as well, which was nice um, because, uh, you know, very intelligent, hardworking person in her own right. And, and um, I think she, she sort of learned that maybe she didn't have the, the same natural gifts that, that I had and, and learned a better work ethic and it served her very well. She's now, she's now the one with the master's degree and I'm the one playing cards for a living. So, um, you know, who, who went out in the end? I, I really, I really like your description of your siblings and the dynamic because the dynamic between siblings is very real. Um, I just have one sibling, uh, a younger brother, but definitely our lives are intertwined. And one of us was more academically focused than the other. We had our ups and downs and it, but it really like, allowed us to formulate who we are because like a lot of who we are comes from our childhood right and you're right and you're totally right about the grades thing too it's like at that age it's really our core identity whereas now as adults we can say like i choose to be x and y right um i choose to present myself in a certain way but when you're younger you don't really have that luxury and i'm just so glad too that you know, your parents or your mom gave you like choices, even though, like you said, you just snapped it off, like went two grades higher above. But, you know, the, the key thing is that he gave you the choice and then you kind of made a good, um, I guess, calculated social decision based on that. So that's it's interesting to hear that stuff for sure. I snapped off the decision because in my head, it was just one less year of school. <laughs> ah, OK, pragmatism. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that, that, that's the only thing that was going through my head at that point. The uh, you know the social stuff that was that was that didn't even didn't even register to me it was just like you're telling me I can just skip a year of school um, <laughs> yes sign me up it, it was yeah it was not a close decision 
Did you have any favorite teachers in uh, in school, like either elementary or high school, or even later on? Like any memorable teachers that came to mind still? Two from high school that are, are certainly the most memorable, um, and they were my calculus teacher and a U.S. history teacher. And lo and behold, I ended up majoring in math and minoring in history when I was in college. <laughs> uh, so um, just two people that were uh, genuinely excited about what they were teaching, especially our, our calculus teacher, Mr. Leckie. That man loved teaching calculus. And uh, I ended up um, uh, moving, mathematically, I moved in a very different direction. I loved learning calculus from him. But when I got to college and started taking, you know, real analysis and, and uh, that branch of math, I, I liked it a lot less that, than higher level uh, algebra and the, the discrete stuff, you know, number theory and, and things like that. So mathematically, we, we kind of split, but he was just, he was very engaging. He was good at, um, he was good at showing the big picture, which to me is always really helpful. I'm, I'm a big picture person. And I like, once I have a good idea of what the big picture is, I'm actually quite good at intuiting, like filling in the details, um, just intuitively. Uh, and he, he was very good at providing that. He, he would show the connections between things, like the math that he was teaching was not just this type of problem you solve in this procedural way, this other type of problem you solve in this other procedural type of way, which is a, a, the really bad trap that a lot of people get, get caught into. And then you really don't understand the underlying patterns and structures that are you know being laid out before you. So he was very good at showing that kind of thing. So it was very helpful to me and engaging. And then the the U.S. history teacher, uh, though he 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 ended up being um, um, a little detrimental in terms of, of the the test at the end of the year. It was it was AP U.S. history, and so the AP exam at the end of the year, he just blatantly just said, he, "I'm not teaching the tests. I'm going to teach what I want to teach." And so we weren't really prepared for like how to game the test as teachers tell like often teach you how to do. That said none of my AP exams mattered at all. So it literally was just a waste of money. I shouldn't have even taken them. Yeah. Uh, because my, my college did not accept any of the credits. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a complete waste of time. Um, but he, uh, again, like he, the, what he taught was not just lists of names and dates. It was, it was narrative. It was storytelling, which is what history is that like it was. And, um, you know, it, it is the story of how we got to, to where we are now. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, and again, that, that's a very big picture way of looking at things. And that's the way I like looking at things. So, uh, just two very engaging teachers. Uh, um, I actually like, I don't think I've ever put that together, by the way, until right now, where like I, I've always known those were my two favorite teachers throughout school, mm -hmm. but I never realized that like they were a math teacher and a history teacher. And those are the two things I studied most in college. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I, I don't know if I should feel bad about not putting two and two together there. There but, might have been uh, a correlation there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, that, I think that's the first time I've, that, that particular uh, bell has rung inside my head. I think it's also uh, a key highlight is that. Ideally, education should be teaching us how to think, right? So I think in, yes. in that way, your two teachers are also shining a light on, you know, as you said, like, what's the storytelling behind the history and also for the math, like the why, as opposed to just like the how, right? I think that's very important to highlight. Yes. And it's why I really, um, 
I get frustrated with people that think education should just be teaching you general life skills. Like everyone go, all, there's so many like memes I see on social media about people are from people and they're always saying, uh, and this is uh, besides the, the common core math stuff that goes around, but it's a lot of people saying like, well, you know, I learned like, you know, the capitals of all these countries or learned, you know, X, Y, and Z historical, excuse me, facts. But I never learned how to like open a bank account or do my taxes uh, and, and stuff like that. Like that stuff mm -hmm. would be really useful, right? And I was like, one, um, I'm pretty sure there were classes you could take in a lot of high schools that would teach you those things. Two, doing those things when you were in high school is likely going to be not, is likely not actually going to serve you well when you're an adult. Like when I was a kid in elementary school, we got taught how to use a card catalog because it was right before computers started really taking over and our library was not digital yet. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, that ended up being just a not useful skill at all, but they took time to teach it to me. So, you know, we've got to realize that you're teaching kids, you know, when they're between the ages of five and 18, and you're trying to prepare them for a world that is always changing for another, you know, 60, 70, 80 years, hopefully. Uh, and so the best thing that you can do is teach them in a way that makes them adaptable. And that's where teaching you how to think becomes really important. And yeah, it might be true that like certain formulas, like the Pythagorean theorem, aren't particularly useful in your day-to-day -day life. But those things that you learn in math classes are a backdrop that are used to teach you critical reasoning you know, beyond the basic stuff that you've learned in like elementary school that everybody should know and have a general facility with, you know, learning algebra and geometry and trigonometry are ways to teach you general reasoning skills. And those are things that serve you well, you know, regardless of what the world looks like and what age you are and what you do for a living. Um, and I, I also think that we shouldn't be treating school as a way to make people effective workers in our economy. Yeah. Education is a way of, en of enriching our lives and, and exposing us to things that we might end up loving and, and pursuing for the rest of our lives. So, and, you know, a lot, I think a lot of people use that argument to, to support arts education, you know, music and painting and uh, theater and all of those things. And I agree, all of those things are very important and, and they enrich the human experience. Mm -hmm. um, but let's, let's not, think that like learning about history and and reading you know great works of literature and, and learning about mathematics also can't enrich the human experience you know so they mm -hmm. certainly did mine mm -hmm. you know I, um you know i find math and i you know i find it beautiful sometimes and when it can, when it can be elegant and um it's why i gravitated towards discrete things and towards uh pure mathematics as opposed to applied because the applied stuff gets really ugly because you're taking math Con, like you know math theorems and things and and uh sort of twisting them to fit real world applications and the real world world is a lot messier than the made-up world in my head that pure math is about um so but the, like you know i i find beauty and joy in those things and a lot of other people do too you know mr lecky certainly did uh or does um and so you know there's so many other purposes to education than making you a good worker 
and so much, you know, so much more to life than being a good worker and, you know, making a, a high wage. Uh, and I wish people would, um, you know, re- learn to embrace those things as uh, very as useful, even if they aren't lucrative. Yeah, it, it's to me, it's like uh, it's related to a theory that I heard about, like raising one's kids. Now, I don't have any kids, but I, I've felt that, you know, like uh, just like you, I felt fortunate to have uh good parents and i feel like good parents give you choice they let you explore different things and then hopefully you will find the thing that you want to continue with they might say like try the piano or try you know track and field but in the end you're going to figure out like ross miriam's going to figure out like he likes math and he likes history right so i feel like the school system or educational system needs to also um do that perhaps more effectively than it does today. Because I think on the one hand, uh, you or I or a certain, certain other people may be fortunate in that we we know, we kind of have an idea what we want to do, but I think not all um, kids like circumstantially uh, know that. So it, I think there's an argument for like just giving people hard skills because at least you fall back on it if you don't know what the heck you want to do. Certainly I wasn't 100% sure whether my undergrad degree was the right uh choice uh it was it was kind of like uh just i wouldn't say random but it was like i didn't know what i was getting into and a lot of people don't so i i guess it's uh, that's the other thing too is like i as i get older i the, i guess the point i'm trying to make is that like i used to be much more firm about beliefs i had but now in my late 30s i just feel like it's more and more challenging because every opinion i can see the other side or at least i should say that if you can't see two sides of the argument then you're not also not thinking clearly enough so that that's that's my own inner struggle and i'm sorry to interject myself into it but like that's that's also a challenge for me no i I think that's a, a very good point and and i agree you should be able to see both sides that doesn't mean you shouldn't always take one side over the other sometimes you can see yep. both sides and clearly see one is right and one is wrong uh, but you should be able to understand both sides. That's just that's proper investigation into a problem. And, you know, as Mao teaches us, no investigation, no right to speak. Uh, so I, everybody should live their life that way, where, you know, if you want to be speaking out on, on an issue or, or on have really any opinion at all, you should have an informed opinion. Um, but the, the, the sad the sad reality is, uh, um, you know, the as much as I talked about how education is this incredibly enriching thing or can be and shouldn't be used to just create, uh, you know, good, obedient workers. That's actually what it was designed to do, at least in the United States. That's the history of public education here uh, starting in the 19th century when, when, you know, free public education uh, or at least publicly subsidized or funded uh, education, um, you know, starts to come to fruition. You know, the idea was, you know, before that, before industrialization, when, you know, you would just send off a kid to apprentice if they were going to like toil away in the fields for their lives. If they were going to try to uh, do something more, you sent them to apprentice under somebody who knew what they were doing. And they just kind of learned under under that relationship. And when, you know, when we industrialized and suddenly there's this massive need for workers who know how to operate, you know, heavy machinery and, and do all these other things required to make the industrial machine turn, and make that economy function, there's a certain 
you know, basic set of skills that needs to be instilled within uh, every person so that we can meet the needs of, of that new uh, economic reality. And that's what public education was, was founded on. Uh, it's been sort of blended with some philosophical and ideological um, concerns. And a lot of that is often used now to indoctrinate people into a certain way of thinking. And you get things like lost cause uh, theory about the U.S. Civil War being taught in, in not just southern states. I got taught lost cause stuff in, in um in eighth grade in, in Connecticut, I, I think I had a Southern teacher, but um, mm -hmm. you know that stuff w w was perfectly fine to teach kids that the Civil War was all about states' rights and not really mention that it was you know actually about slavery because it's incredibly obvious if you do any amount of research into it at all. Um, but th that kind of thing, you know, is now uh, an ideological battleground that gets fought in the in the sphere of public education. So uh, it. I agree that we should have an education system that offers a lot more freedom and choice to students. I think things should be a lot more flexible. Um, I think too much of, of our socialization happens via school and that's what keeps kids, uh, keeps people in, in these rigid boxes where you got to keep all the grades level because they're all socializing together and you don't want to upset that balance. Mm -hmm. And uh, we often now have, this, have systems where you just kind of push kids along because you don't want to hold them back because that creates a social stigma. Mm -hmm. um, and that means kids get pushed through the system that don't even know how to read uh, and other horrible realities. Um, and we, we, if we had a better you know, society around it and didn't need school to function as a effectively free daycare for working parents, um, you know, we could design a system that worked a lot more effectively for people. But we've got to get beyond the constraints that we're working with in our current world in order to do that. Now, switching gears a little bit, Ross, I think you touched on this a little bit, just in terms of like, you know, life is not just all about making as much money as possible and, you know, seeking challenges. But I think some of this is documented, but I kind of want to hear straight from you. Like, how did you, was it a fairly straightforward choice to be like, you know, graduate from math and, and doing that in undergrad and like going into Magic the Gathering, like full steam? Because like you were a pretty prolific grinder for... A large part of your life and i think a part of that is the competition part of that is just like maybe this is like a math problem or a poker problem that you can solve but like what was it a straightforward transition for you did you have like other things you were thinking about in your career before we you embarked on the kind of like the grinder lifestyle yeah i mean I, there was a point in my life where i, I wasn't playing a ton of magic and i, I thought i was going to leave the game behind and really stop playing on, on a regular basis uh and join the real world so, uh, you know, I went to college with the idea of becoming an engineer because that was just like the major that math and science oriented people went into to have a good career because that's what basically what I thought college was at the time. So very different than the way I am now. And so I went in and was like, yeah, and you know, my brother was doing that too. So I was like, yeah, I'll just like be an engineer. So I went to a school with a good engineering program and that was my, my whole thing. And uh, the way uh, I went to Harvey Mudd College, uh, which is a small school in, in Southern California, mm -hmm. um, I also wanted to just go to a very different place than I had grown up in. So I flew 3,000 miles away uh, and went to school in Southern California. Um, and uh, I, th the way it worked was, you know, your freshman year, you basically just took all the gen ed, uh, you know, classes. But your second semester, you had one free period, basically. And almost everybody, if you had an idea of what you wanted to major in, 
took like an intro course in that major. So right. I took engineering four, which was a project oriented class. Um, so it, you just got, there were three projects over the course of the semester. You got split into different teams for all of them. Uh, and, you know, I think the first one was uh, designing and building a dowel sorter. So there were, there were the dowels were all the same size and that, but they were made of four different materials. There was like a wood one, an acrylic one, a metal one maybe, and like something else, I'm not sure. And you just had to like, they gave you no instruction. It was all, it was just do this thing. And it just was a miserable experience. Uh, I was not great working with people. Um, and like, I, we, I just had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I, I just wasn't as, um, I wasn't nearly as confident in my own problem solving as I am now. And a mm -hmm. lot of that confidence actually comes from my education in, in math. Um, and so to me, that was like a very weird class to be thrown into. I, I get the idea of what they were doing. They were trying to like get sort of stretch your limits. Right. Uh, and, but I had just a miserable experience. I didn't like some of the people that I worked with over the course of that. Um, and just from that one class, I decided like, there is no way I'm majoring in engineering. This sounds miserable. Mm -hmm. And so then I was just kind of stuck. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I just thought like, you know, over this last year, I've taken, you know, courses in almost everything. I think, that, I think the one thing I hadn't taken was biology yet because that was saved for sophomore year. There's only one required semester of biology, but I knew I hated biology from high school. So that was already out. That was mm -hmm. never a consideration. I knew I, I knew I couldn't do a lab science. I'm absolutely miserable in a lab. I was in high school. <laughs> I, I would, high, high school science labs were always so simple that I would just look at like the paper and it, it would like, you know, you would yeah. take some basic uh, measurements, right? Over sure. during the lab. And then you had to do a bunch of calculations and it would just guide you through the calculations. And I could literally see like how the calculation was going. <laughs> and, you know, I would do it the first time with my actual results from the lab. And yeah. my errors were always massive, like right. comically awful. And I would right. just see how the how the math worked out and be like, this number should be lower than it is. And I would just doctor them. Yeah. I would just forge all of my lab work <laughs> to make it work. I was like, you know, it's fine. I understand the concepts. Like you don't need, I just can't, I literally like, I just can't work. I know I it's, supposed, I no it's supposed to be easy, skills. right? Like you're shooting the free throw. Yeah. You, just, you just keep your arm like in a certain angle. It's a straight line. There's nobody like no <laughs> defender. You're like, it's easy, right? You just, you just do it a yeah. hundred times and make a hundred shots. Like what's so hard about it? But it's, yeah, yeah we're all built differently. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I remember I, I, distinctly remember one day my uh, my freshman year when I was in chemistry lab and it, it was a four-hour lab period on like Thursday or Friday afternoon I think Thursday and uh and normally you would be done in like two or three hours like you wouldn't take the full four and a lot of the time you know if you didn't get through everything they would just kind of tell you to leave like you can get it done <laughs> um because you usually had a couple weeks in the lab to get something done yeah. And the proctor didn't want to stay there anyway. There was some chemistry major that was like, you know, was assigned to do that. And it was like, yeah, you're the last one here. I don't really want to leave. Yeah. You know, they might, they might help you out, tell you what to do. Yeah, they might yeah. do it for you. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff like that. And, uh, but, uh, you know, there, for the most part, they just wanted you to go through the process and write about it. So even if you like didn't finish, if you like talk, you know, wrote about why you finished and, thought, and you know, put that in your lab report, that was fine. Uh, but for, for whatever reason, this one experiment they wanted us to do, like we had to get it, 
uh, we had to get results within a certain range. Because this is apparently a pretty easy one. It was literally testing the concentration of calcium carbonate, CaCO2, CaCO3, in eggshells, right? So we like mashed up eggshells with a mortar and pestle, you know, put it in a solution and then put it through a mass spectrometer, which is just a, for those who don't know, it's a big machine that spins really, really fast. So all, uh, it spins so fast that yeah, the materials and the samples the separate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, and then, and it spits out a reading of the, the mass of all the materials. And you can compare that to the, you know, known mass of all these elements and figure out, you know, what's in your stuff. Uh, and so, you know, like the, you know, the mass of a mole of, of calcium carbonate ions is like what, uh, th three oxygens is 40 because they're 16 per mole and, and carbon is like, uh, like 11, I think if I remember correctly, I don't, can't remember what calcium is, but it's probably like 30 ish or something like that. So you're like 90 grams per mole of, of calcium carbonate and you would see that. Um, and, and I swear to you, I did this thing like nine times. <laughs> and it just never came out within the acceptable bounds. Yeah. I, I literally did it with the proctor standing behind me the entire time, basically right. holding my hand through it. Right. And I did every step and they're like, yep, that looks great. That looks great. That looks great. That looks great. And then it comes out, doesn't work. Mm. I was there for five hours. <laughs> I, I just, I couldn't, I, I couldn't take it anymore. So yeah. I, I knew I couldn't be in a lab. Yeah. So that, that ruled out physics and chemistry. Couldn't do yeah. those. I wasn't going to do biology. I knew I wasn't going to do computer science. If there's one failing that my parents had, it was their late adoption of technology. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have a, a internet in my high, in my home until 2005, my senior year of high school. So mm -hmm. we, we were behind the curve there. Um, and, you know, looking back on it, I wish I had, you know, taken some computer classes in high school instead of being in shitty fucking band. Uh, mm -hmm. for four years, I think it would have served me a lot better. And I would have had, I would have been a lot more interested in it and, and better serving college. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was just too far behind. I didn't feel like catching up to do any sort of computer science. So it was sort of process of, of elimination that left me like, if I wasn't going to do engineering, like this is a small school, those are basically the only majors we had, right? right? It was that and math. And I was like, you know what? I actually enjoyed math. I was already a year ahead because of the four semesters I had taken at Wesleyan that actually got me college credit, which was great. Um, so I, and, uh, they, they weren't going to accept my five on the AP calculus exam, but the, the day I landed for orientation, I, uh, and I saw my schedule and they, they put me in calculus. I went to, uh, the head of the math department. That's who they brought me to. I just talked to my, my proctor, which was our like resident advisor, uh, what we called them. And, uh, you know, told the guy, like, look, I've literally take, I've literally taken analysis at, and, you know, an accredited four-year university and did well in it. Uh, you know, I shouldn't be forced to take calculus and he just waived the requirement. I didn't get credit for it. So I didn't have to take any of the first year math. I took only, so I took sophomore year math, my, my freshman year. Um, so I was already ahead there. I liked doing it. I was good at it. And so I was like, I guess this is what I'm doing. Uh, so I, I was a math major and, you know, as a math major, you don't have like, if you're not doing a lot of, com of computer work, which I wasn't, um, you know, that you're, you're not really doing a lot of, uh, of stuff in the private sector. So my entire plan was to just be a career academic. I was like, yeah, I'll just go get a PhD. And like, you know, that's, I'll just be professor Ross, the math guy. Yeah. And that'll be my thing. So I, uh, you know, I was, uh, I, I applied to graduate schools my senior year. I ended up getting into Oregon and Northeastern and the money they were giving me at Northeastern was better than the money they were giving me in Oregon. 
And after four years on the West Coast, I learned that I like the East Coast of the United States a lot more than the West Coast. So, uh, you know, went with the East Coast school that was giving me more money. And I was like, yeah, this is this will be cool. I'll move to Boston. I'll get to live in Boston and it'll be fun. Um, And that was that was my whole plan. Uh, And then over that summer after I graduated, I was like, okay, I'm going to be home in the summer. I got to start studying for the, for like entrance exams because after like your first year, you got to take a bunch of exams. So you just got to keep studying Mm -hmm. and it turned out after like four years of intense studying and getting the undergrad degree, I was like kind of burnt out. I did a really shitty job on my thesis. I like, you know, um, my, my parents are probably going to listen to this, so they might be appalled, but I, I came pretty close to not graduating. Uh, because of how crappy my thesis was. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it was just a symptom of me not wanting to put in a, a ton of work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can call it laziness. I ended up deciding to call it, you know, lack of passion. Um, <laughs> and I sort of, you know, I was going to say lack of that. motivation, similar. Yeah. Yeah. Lack of motivation, whatever you want to call it. You know, I like math, but like there's always, you know, I know a lot of people like to say, like, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And that's just complete horseshit. No, that's falsehood. Yeah. Yeah, it's completely false. Like what happens is you take something you love and you turn it into something you you can't love. I don't you can't love, you know, (laughs) I've never heard that before. Um, Because because, you know, work that you have to do to survive becomes like you have to start doing it when you don't want to do it. You have to do things in in that sphere that you don't want to do um and and so that's you know that's an easy way to like you know fall out of of love with something and um you know the the grind of of studying high level math got to be a a little bit too much it gets really really abstract and weird and just like there's so much terminology and i just got uh, just got to be too much. So, uh, yeah, over that summer, I kind of accepted that fact and, and basically just told my parents like, yeah, I'm not going to grad school. And they're like, well, what are you going to do? I was like, I don't really know. And, um, in, in their continually supportive way, they were just like, well, I guess if, if you don't want to do it, you don't want to do it. Like that's your decision. Mm-hmm. That's it's your life. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for better or worse, you know, maybe, maybe my life would be a lot better right now if they literally forced me to go. Uh, you know, that's certainly a possibility. We'll never know. Uh, but that's who they are. Uh, and I still appreciate that about them. And so I was, you know, in that post-grad malaise where I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life and I wasn't doing anything. So I just, if I was going to, you know, I, I had time to play more magic. So I started playing more magic and, uh, you know, going to tournaments and lo and behold, after four years of, you know, studying math and becoming a much better problem solver, I was a much better magic player. Even though I wasn't playing a ton the last couple years of my undergrad, I, I played quite a bit my freshman and sophomore years, uh, you know, either going to FNMs, traveling to some PTQs, and I would play on, on breaks when I was home, you know, winter break, summer break. But, um, you know, I, I was I was much better when I came back. And I the second PTQ season I played after graduating uh, the fall PTQ season, I queued for my first pro tour. And it, then yeah. it just it just kind of kept going from there. Like I, I top 16 at Grand Prix a couple months after that pro tour and queued for another pro tour, had a disasterful pro tour there in Philadelphia. And then it was the the following year so that that would have been 2011 when I played my first pro tour in 2012 was my first year playing on the SCG tour because they expanded enough to start running a lot of events in the Northeast. And it just kind of grew from there. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have to ask the, the thing that you described with, 
I don't know if it's the right term, but like in a way, like burning out from what you, the path you had before, which is the sort of like become an academic, get a PhD and, and that kind of stuff. You just realized one day that it wasn't for you for whatever reasons. Do you think about whether that is just for that domain or it's your personality? Because I, I guess I'm trying to ask, I guess the question here is, do you think that could happen for your career now as a content creator or your involvement in magic? Absolutely. To a certain extent, I, I think it already has. Um, n- not in the same way. I still want to do what I'm doing and I enjoy what I'm doing. Uh, but I enjoy different aspects of it than I did when I started getting into it. Mm. You know, when I was in my early to mid 20s and I was traveling 40, 50 weekends a year, uh, I, I, I loved the grind. I literally, I loved it. Part of it was because I wasn't doing anything at home. So mm-hmm. it was either sit at home and be bored or be on the road and, and, you know, be around all my friends and, and, you know, play tournaments, which, which I enjoyed doing. Um, you know, I think when, when things pick up again, uh, I'm going to be more judicious in the tournaments that I play and I'm going to be more prepared for each individual tournament. You know, when, when you're playing tournaments nearly every weekend, you can't be that prepared every single time. Uh, and that was part of what motivated, you know, early in my career, I often just picked a deck and, and stuck with it. Uh, and so I spent an entire year playing uh, Green White Maverick and Blue White Delver in standard or legacy and standard on the SCG tour in 2012. I, I played those decks, you know, I played Delver from, you know, for six months from or eight months maybe until it rotated and i played maverick all the way through the year i played it at the december invitational that year in 2012 in la um and, and you know that helped me be more prepared week in week out when i when i was traveling um but i also just i i enjoyed playing the same deck eight months in a row I, like it, it those decks were fun to me i don't think i could do that now mm-hmm. um you know it's uh, i'm gonna get bored playing the same deck for in every tournament for eight months. So to me now I'm, I'm much more willing. Uh, part of it is also more confident in my ability to, you know, tune decks, pick up decks quickly uh, and, and select decks for, for a, a given metagame where I, I was not particularly good at those things early in my career. But uh, I, you know, w- with that confidence has come an appreciation for doing those things. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, if you th- of my of my five open trophies, the one that I'm most proud of is the one with Is It Phoenix because that was that was my deck. I, I didn't come up with it from scratch, uh, but you know I made very I made several significant uh, you know ev- uh, improvements to the the existing lists and brought it from you know this fringe archetype that people were seeing on Moto to you know the the most dominant deck in modern for probably about three months. So. You know, that was an incredibly gratifying thing to see and not something I'd really seen, you know, in my career before then. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I built some good decks for individual weekends. I had some really good like week one decks uh, that ended up just not being good, but they were good Mm -hmm. for that like week one metagame. Mm -hmm. Um, And so so I I appreciate different things about the, you know, competitive magic and content creation now than I did when when I first started. And I think that's an important aspect of keeping your joy with something that you're committed so much, you're committing so much of your life to. And, and this this is sort of the same with personal relationships too, right? Where, you know, if you get married at, at 30 and you're still together 25 years later, you're probably very different people than when you were 30. 
not to say that you're completely different. There, there, uh, there are things that have stayed there over that time, but you've grown and, and you've changed in ways. And so you've got to learn to appreciate different things about your partner 25 years later than things that you appreciated 30 years later in order to maintain that relationship to the same level. And it's the same with magic or in, anything that, that you're doing to, uh, you're committing a significant portion of yourself and your life too. Uh, you know, I've changed a lot in the last 10 years. And so necessarily my relationship to magic has changed in those 10 years. And I can't sit here and pine over the things that I wish I still, you know, I wish I still liked being going to a different city, you know, every single weekend. But now it's 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 pretty tiring. You know, I remember we were Corey and I before the, the pandemic hit and everything got canceled. So, you know, we had been traveling that early part of, of the SCG tour schedule. I think, you know, I, I ended up skipping the week before, which was regionals, but he went to that too. So he had played like three weeks in a row or something. And I had played three out of four, you know, and we were both just like, God, I really like want a weekend off. I remember that there was like a, a band that he really wanted to see at, uh, at one of our favorite bars downtown here in Roanoke that Saturday. And so when they were talking about canceling it, we were thinking like, oh, this will be great. Like cancel this weekend. We want the week off. Had we known we weren't going to get paper tournaments for another two years, uh, you know, we, we would have thought very differently. But, you know, yeah. we, you know it, it's it's hard to keep doing that year in, year out. You know, um, part of it is also just just aging. You know, I could I could get by on less sleep when I was 25 than I than I can now. Um, but, you know, the, I just had I've had to learn to uh, appreciate different things about magic and love mm. different things about magic and, and competitive magic and content creation that then when I first started, like, yeah. um, you know, when I, when I first started doing content creation, my whole idea and the thing that I, I was really excited to try to do was to try to bring a sense of academia into it. And I want, mm. I thought there were, and I, I still do think there's opportunities to do things like this and they mm -hmm. would be interesting. Uh, it would just be incredibly difficult to do because magic content is so, uh, time oriented. Um, um, that like you, you just have to churn it out. And, mm -hmm. and you oftentimes, if you write an article, it's irrelevant a week or two later, mm -hmm. but this would be kind of theory stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I wanted to bring some of that to, to, to magic. I remember one, one of the ideas I had was I thought that you could use uh, predator prey models in, uh, in an ecosystem and treat a metagame like an ecosystem and use predator prey models to sort of predict behavior of how much a given deck is going to increase and decrease mm -hmm. and how much that is going to you know make a certain deck better or worse given your assumptions about how favorable uh, the matchups are or, mm -hmm. or unfavorable they are i do think that's an interesting avenue to explore but it's just not something you can really do with the way that that um you know content is structured right now uh and, and also like it's not really what our audience wants you know yeah. um yeah. Back then, I was I was so honed in on just the competitive uh, on the competitive side of things, and to me, content was just a way. It, it was uh, it, to me, it was an academic discipline. It was the best players in the world writing articles to try to you know advance our collective understanding of this incredibly difficult game. Mm -hmm. You know the way people write like chess books and things like that. Mm -hmm. As as I learned, and as it turns out, magic content is. Um, it's not really that. Uh, you're not really writing to an audience of other really high-level players, at least not all the time. You know, um, you're more writing to the person at FNM 
who like is working a job all week and maybe has a couple kids and what's a family. my sideboard that, uh, for my F and M? Yeah, demographic. Yeah, they don't have the time to put in to be prepared week in week out and always be on top of the latest metagame advancement, the latest tech for the for the newest decks. But they you know they have a couple decks that they like and you know certain strategies that they favor. And all they want is a good chance of going three one or four zero at their F and M and getting getting some prize at the end of the week. They don't necessarily want to be told how to fish. That's that's it. Yeah, and, and and that's not even that's not even a bad thing. That was the main lesson I had to learn. Yeah, that's what I. So you know, we had we've had this argument within the magic community about was, and it came up largely around cyber guides. And there's there were so many people, and I was on that side. We're like, yeah, we should just be teaching them how to fish. It's so much better. They're going to get better at the game that way. And it's like, well, they don't want like a lot of people play magic. They don't want to realize that they don't want to be the best magic player they can be. And that's not not a bad thing. It's just not that that big a part of their life. It's a hobby. They but they don't like nobody wants to put in some effort into something and just get crushed every week. Uh, and so some people like need a little bit of help, and that's fine. And that's largely what what magic content is. That's where we butter our bread. Uh, and so I've learned to you know cater my content to that crowd. And I I've learned uh, you know you know I, I like writing about magic theory still, but theory articles aren't really their their bag, and it's not really necessary for them. But one of the things that I, I'm, I like about what I do now with where with my articles is I often will like come up with a topic that I'm writing about, and at a certain point in the in the article I'm 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 trying to explain a theoretical concept to justify the decision that I'm making that is somewhat counterintuitive. So there's usually like nuggets of theory in my articles, which I find people like because it, it, it because it's coming with the direct the direct example that shows you the theory in action. Uh, which makes it more accessible and it makes it not overwhelming for someone who might not be as versed in other, you know, the canon of magic theory. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I get to do something that I enjoy and, and, you know, write about the theoretical side of things a, li a little bit, um, but in a way that makes sense for what my audience wants too. because, you know, if you're an, if you're an, an author, you're writing articles and you're only writing things that you want to read I, I think that, is, you know, that's advice that some people will give you. Um, and I think that can be taken too far. Like you, you should be writing things that you do want to read, but you will have another constraint there because you also have to write things that your audience wants to read. So you got to find the intersection. Like what yeah. is, what are the things that both of you want to read? That's what you should be focused on when you're getting into magic content. Because if you're only trying to say like, oh, I should do exactly what my audience wants and everything they want and nothing more, you're gonna end up doing a lot of things that you don't wanna do. And then the passion's not gonna come through. You're not gonna be as dedicated to it. And that's gonna come through in the quality of the work that you do. So th the key is really finding that intersection. And what are the things that both of us enjoy and really are interested in reading and is helpful for us to read? And then you're getting the benefits of both sides. I love this discussion so much because First of all, because it's it's something that I think about a lot too, not just in magic, but in a lot of things in life. It's it's like, I think it's part of maturing, right? It's like when you're younger, you think that the world revolves around you and you should just be writing what you want to write about. And if they don't like it, then F them and that kind of thing. Or maybe, I, maybe I'm the only one who thought like that. But uh, then you realize like, you know, you got to hook people in. Like uh, you got to find the right combination of mass appeal and... Uh, your own identity because like on, on one end of the spectrum, you have like super theoretical magic videos and articles. And even some people have written books on magic, right? Patrick Chapin, next level magic or whatever. Uh, but then on the other hand, like how accessible 
is that? And I think, I think at the end of the day, like if you, if you can reach more people and just give them nuggets of like, Hey, maybe I should explore this more in, in like bit by bit, or maybe like Ross is my favorite writer on SCG. And I don't know exactly why they don't even have to know why, but it's just because something you're doing or writing really jives with them. Right. And sometimes people can't even explain why they like certain authors or things. So if you can like, just put the nuggets in there, I think that's like the real victory. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, you've got to retain a, a unique voice because that's ultimately what people gravitate towards. They might, you know, they might not like it and then they'll gravitate away from you. Um, but the people that do will, will, you know, really stick, stick with you. And so I, I've tried to do that more in my writing rather than, you know, uh, and, and that's getting it into the more of like, the, you know, write what you like side. But, you know, for the most part, it, it's so much of it is about finding the balance between two competing forces where you have the one side where you're trying to live for yourself and the other side where you're trying to live, you know, live for other people because we all have to live together. And to a certain extent, we, we should live for other people. And oftentimes those two two forces contradict each other. Because if you're doing things selfishly, you're oftentimes doing it at the expense of, of someone else. So uh, ultimately, it, it becomes important for us to be cognizant of both sides. Again, see both sides and then find the right balance, strike the right balance between the two of the two sides. Because, you know, life is dialectical and we've just, you know, you just got to figure out the dialectics. I also want to talk a little bit about you know, your physical transition from Connecticut to, to Roanoke. And, you know, I guess that's uh, SCG HQ, right? So it makes sense for you to, to be there. But I, I have a sense from talking to others and also reading what you've written that moving to Roanoke was a kind of a, a major transition for you as a, if this was a novel about Ross Miriam, it'd be like, you know, it symbolizes like a, a change in who you are and your personal views. And I heard you're doing some cool stuff in the community as well. But let me put this into a question. Like, how do you think, you know, moving to Roanoke has has changed you as a person, if it has? Um, It's kind of a broad question. This, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have an answer. I'm just trying to find the right way to phrase it. So the reality is that, you know, I was living at home. Uh, you know, with my parents after not going to grad school, uh, you know, until the time I, I moved to Roanoke. So that was from you know May of 2010 when I graduated from college until uh, December of 2015. I moved very late December, right after Christmas. I remember, um, you know, I had been, I got the offer to do it in like late summer, I think. I want to say August. And, you know, and hadn't really heard back from them about it. I wasn't sure if we were really confirmed until like November uh, that I was going to, you know, going to get to come here and do verses. And, and at that point I wasn't even sure when exactly the move was happening. And when I was there in Roanoke for the players championship that year, I, you know, talked with Cedric and he told me that like they wanted to start doing verses that in January. So like, can I move, you know, pretty soon. And I was like, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing anything. So I got home from the players championship, like two days before Christmas or something. And just told my parents like, yeah, I'm moving next week. Uh, I think, I, I think I flew here on the 28th uh, of December. So uh, a bit shocking for them, I'm sure. But uh, you know, by that, by that point I was ready and really wanted to be living on my own. Uh, if I'm being honest, like I, I felt like a burden to them. Um, I think that's a largely Western, um, you know, notion where like 
kids should be pushed out of their of the household as quickly as possible and be very independent. And I think that's somewhat toxic. Uh, but you know that that I I was I fell victim to it. So I felt very much like a burden. I'm sure my parents didn't think of it that way. Um, and if you know things fell apart with for me here tomorrow, I could move back there in a heartbeat um, because that's who my parents are. And uh, so. Uh, but I, I really wanted that. Like I, and I, I needed that. Like it was, it's hard to really, you know, it, it was, it was hard to really be fully be myself still living with my parents. Um, I think that, um, you know, I think that's understandable. And, uh, you know, I, there was an important aspect to, you know, uh, to living on my own. So I was very excited for the opportunity. Um, and that's what, you know, when I got here to Roanoke, that's what was important to me. What was, was independence. Um, so even though I, I didn't have a car when I moved here, I still don't have one. You know, I, you know, I was taking the bus everywhere. It's, I still often take the bus. Um, you know, I, I, I really wanted to, you know, be as, as independent as possible. Um, and with that came a lot of, of self-discovery um, that that changed who I am. So I don't know if necessarily like moving to Roanoke specifically did that, but it was more being on my own and having the opportunity to really develop more as a person. Um, and, and the the circumstances were moving to Roanoke was what allowed me to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think you're talking about my my political transformation. Um, but that that did honestly start a little bit before I moved to Roanoke. Um, I just, I don't even know what the real impetus for it was, but I, uh, I, I just sort of decided that I wanted to be more aware of the world. I, I think part of it was living on my own. I felt uh, like I was having extended adolescence. I felt like a kid and I didn't like that. Mm -hmm. um, so to, and, and in my mind, like to be an adult, I had to be more, you know, a part of the world and more aware of the world. And so I, I, you know, made some effort to do that um, and started becoming more politically aware and really started with, with pretty basic social democratic views about things. Uh, and, you know, I, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter. I actually like I, I moved here in, uh, and I needed to like sign up for the, pro the June primary by like January something. And by the time I like, you know, thought to look it up because I spent my first couple of weeks, like, you know, moving into an, into an apartment and getting settled here. I wasn't really, you know, uh, th that, uh, you know, it took me a couple of weeks to start getting into other stuff. And when I looked at it, I was like, Oh, I need to register to vote. Right. Cause I want to be like an adult person who, who participates in our civic society. And, uh, I like missed the deadline by like three days or something. So I didn't even get to vote in the, in the June primary, but I voted it, you know, in the 2016 election. And, and to me, you know, it was important that I not just vote every four years and be done with it because that to me wasn't really being a part of the, of the world. And so I, I, you know, kept at it and I started, I kept educating myself um, as much as I could. And I started, volunteering with different groups and I started in a much more liberal electoral sphere. Uh, you know, I volunteered with the ACLU a couple times. Uh, I still get messages from them. I should unsubscribe. Uh, but I also uh, helped to found the Roanoke chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby, which lobbies for climate change and a specific piece of legislation known as uh, carbon fee and dividend, mm -hmm. um, which I no longer believe in. 
Um, but, you know, I was doing other, other work as I was evolving in my political views in Roanoke. And, you know, that aspect of my life has become an important one in part because it gave me more balance with magic. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of people move here with the idea that they're just going to go all in on magic again or, or like all, you know, keep going all in. Because usually like when you get the opportunity to come here and, and work for SCG in the capacity that I'm working, it's usually because you've been grinding your ass off, playing a bunch of tournaments, doing pretty well. I had been writing for the website for, you know, uh, a year and a half or so, a little over a year, I think when I, when I got the offer. Um, and so, t- you know, to me, this was like the chance to keep going and go and, you know, work with a bunch of great players that were here in Roanoke at the time. A- and um, w- what you actually find is that issue that you have when you turn something, you- you're a hobby into your job, um, where uh, it becomes not the thing that you escape to, but the thing you need to escape from. And a lot of people get in that trap where they're a hundred percent magic. And when things aren't going there that well on the magic side of things, they have nothing to fall back on, nothing to like, you know, cheer them up and to, to, you know, keep them sane. Uh, And the, you know, evolving politically and doing work in the community here in Roanoke has been, you know, another key aspect of my life and has been something that I lean on when magic things aren't going well. And I can lean on magic things when the political stuff isn't going well. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so it was important in in that respect and, uh, you know, what people see and for better or for worse uh, on my social media and wherever else they might see, uh, is, you know, it's a, it's a direct result of the work that I have done to educate myself about the problems that we are facing as a country and as a world. And, you know, I think a, a lot of people, um, sort of assume that like for, for whatever reason that like, I must've been like indoctrinated early with these beliefs. Uh, but like, you know, they are completely different from what I believed 10 years ago. And if you told 10 years ago, Ross, the things that I believe now, he probably would have recoiled in horror. So, um, (laughs) you know, it's, it is a direct result of a, of of a fair amount of of self-education and I'm not going to, you know, pretend like I'm an expert. I'm certainly not, but, Mm -hmm. I think, it, you know, to the, the the degree that people like to, you know, come at me on Twitter or wherever, they come at me in a, in a way in a way that I find comical because they're saying that all things that I've heard before and I've heard yeah. a million times before. And so, you know, it's clear to me that I understand both sides of the argument here and they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I just don't let them bother me at this point. Uh, you know, they, it is what it is. And, and I've... Uh, Honestly, it's, it's not even bad. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I just kind of live with it. Yeah. I mean, somebody said that if you, if you look back on yourself like 10 years ago and you're not embarrassed, you're probably doing it wrong. Right. Or you're not like challenging yeah. or pushing yourself enough. So I can definitely see that. Like I would say that I'm not as politically astute as, as you or some others are, but I, I had my political awakening last year and uh, I've definitely changed a lot as a, as a person and also uh, form in, new impressions of friends based on discussions. I'll just put it that way. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm not going to get into too much on my side, but I, I think if we don't challenge ourselves in to grow, you know, then what's the, what's the point, right? Like if we don't do that, what's the point? Like, it's interesting to learn new things. And I, I like looking forward to like, I'm going to read this book and I'm going to get a new idea out of it. And it may not be an idea that I originally even thought of 
or agree with, but I think it's, it's great. I mean, it's just, I, I, yeah. there's no question here, but I, 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 I like that discovery process. Yeah. And, and another aspect of that, I think that's important is to question the things that we, we think we know. Oh yeah. You know, the, there's a very simple example of it that, that I like to bring up and that's in, in trying foods that you don't think you, you like, uh, because your taste buds actually do change over time. And so oftentimes things that you hated you know, or think you hate, you know, are things that you actually are going to enjoy now as you age. Um, but, you know, deep seated beliefs that you had, you know, oftentimes come from a place when you didn't really know any better. And that someone in a position of authority of authority just sort of told you that was true and, and you accepted it. Uh, and that's where, you know, the my point earlier about our education system being used as a form of indoctrination is really insidious here where, you know, we all are taught from a very young age that teachers are the ones that know things. And oftentimes they're teaching you with an agenda or they're being forced to teach you uh, curricula and out of textbooks that were written by people with an agenda and purchased by school boards with an agenda. So, uh, you know, a, a lot of it comes down from questioning the things that you think, you know, um, and it's a, it's a, it's a scary process to do that. I remember going through it with, with, you know, my old political beliefs where I was like, no, this can't possibly be true. Like this, there's just no way. And it's, it's why a lot of people get caught up in, um, in not, you know, in why people get caught up trying to change other people's beliefs just by presenting the facts to them, you know, and oftentimes the response is for the, the other person to even dig in that, that much harder because they've developed an emotional attachment to the beliefs that they have, or they've tied it to their, their identity in some degree. And so, you know, undoing that requires a lot of, of introspection on their part. And you've got to get somehow get them to unravel whatever the belief they have, unravel it from their identity in order to even question changing it, uh, which is a very difficult process. But in many cases, it is an absolutely essential process for us to make progress as a society. If you don't mind getting specific, and we can skip this question too if you like, but I really am curious to know, like, what was your light bulb moment that you did a 180 on what you had believed in the past? Uh, because by uh, you describe yourself on your on your profile as a, a Marxist Leninist, right? So, what what was that light bulb moment for you, where you're just like everything I I thought before. I don't think it's true anymore. Or was it like a series of things and like going deeper and like talking to specific people or exploring certain texts? Like, I'm just, I'm just really curious about that because it's not something that most people can do. Like most people can't do it in their entire lifetime. Hence the question. Yeah. Um, it's a good question. And I, I don't think there is a, there wasn't a, I don't think I know there, there was not a single, you know, light bulb moment. Um, I think what happened was through self-education um, and just becoming more aware of the world around me, the narrative that I had been taught and believed most of my life was slowly chipped away. And once it was sufficiently chipped away, the rest crumbled. So I think there was a point where like the rest of it fell away and, and it, it, you didn't need to chip the 100% of it once you got maybe 50, 60%. I don't know the exact number, but you know. It, you sort of it just sort of slowly, slowly chipped away until the entire edifice, the structural integrity of it failed and, and it collapsed sort of like a bridge. Um, that That's more about what, like what the process was like. 
But the, the chipping away um, didn't necessarily come from me believing the other things I was reading. It start. It came from just me realizing all of the hypocrisy and inconsistency with or between what I believed and what I came to realize was true between my beliefs and reality. So, you know, we get raised to believe that the United States is a force for good and that, you know, uh, all we need to do is get the right people in power and, you know, everything can, can, all our problems can be solved. And if we've, you know, erred in the past, it was only, you know, a mistake and it, it, it you know, it doesn't mean that we can't achieve the, the, the lofty goals that are, you know, written down in like the, the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or whatever. The, the Declaration is, is the dictum. We, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, blah, 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 blah. But when you actually read the, the, the history of the United States and you learn the, uh, you know, what happened, like that's, you, you interpret those words very differently because if you read the entire Declaration of Independence, like it mentions that one of the grievances they have against King George, and that's basically what the entire thing is. Like there, there's some high, high flowery language in the, in the beginning, um, you know, uh, and then, and then the rest of it and the bulk of it is just a list of things that they didn't like King George was doing. And this is why, you know, we're declaring independence, go fuck yourself. And, you know, you see that one of them is King George stopping them from yeah. expanding the country west and and conquering more native land and and slaughtering more indigenous people because mm -hmm. that's what they had been doing since they started colonizing there you know in, in the 15th century at least the or the British started colonizing in the, in the 17th century um, and you know it, you can say that you believe all men are created equal. And yet the society that they set up was explicitly one where the power was concentrated in the hands of landowning white men. Mm -hmm. um, so like that's, is that really what they actually believed? Because their actions don't support that. And actions it's always than actions. Words, always. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's what people do that reveals them more than what they say. Um, and so, so much of the, of the mythology around the United States was built up around the the words of these great men and when the deeds of them were you know far from noble uh about as far as, as you can possibly get so right. then you start to see that the rot that is the core of the united states founding ethos and then and you know and you can trace that further further along you yeah. know this is the, the chipping the, away of the of the beliefs yes, yes yeah and and you and you start to see that that internal rot is still here you know we still have slavery in the united states it just comes in a different form via the the prison industrial complex where prisoners are forced to uh you know labor for 10 cents a day or whatever uh, to you know make a tons of different things in California. They make license plates, I think. And, um, they were, they're fighting fires, uh, you know, in Louisiana, they serve in the governor's mansion, um, and t tons of other things. And, you know, the, it's not like the, the, there you, it's not like that is by accident because they, the prison populations start to increase pretty considerably right after, uh, uh, right after slavery is, uh, or after Jim Crow is abolished really, but also after slavery is abolished, uh, but much more so after Jim Crow, 
because it's, it starts under Nixon in the, in the early 70s, and then it gets ratcheted up to incredible levels in the 80s under Reagan, and then even more in the 90s under Clinton with the 94 crime bill that was authored by Joe Biden. So, you know, all of these things are connected and interrelated. And that's the other thing that, that you've got, I think, we're taught to to think of history as a sort of a series of unrelated um, of of unrelated events, which is a horrible way to teach history. It's actually a fabric, and it's all interwoven. And once you start thinking of it that way, you can't separate the sins of, of this country from the realities of today, because that's what like those things that happened in the past are the reason that our society it functions the way it does today. And so, we haven't properly reckoned with any of those things, even though that's what the what our leaders keep saying, especially in the Democratic Party. And, you know, it, and we haven't even reckoned, we don't even mention the fact that, you know, all of this land is stolen and shouldn't belong to us in the first place. So th there's so much that goes unsaid and there's so much um, uh, political theater where they make paltry concessions to make them, themselves seem progressive. The, the, the most recent one is happening right now where they're the, with this push to make Juneteenth a, a national holiday. Like who gives a fuck about making Juneteenth a national holiday when you have so, uh, so many black people in jail and you have you know uh, police wantonly murdering black people in the streets. Like there is, th like those are the things that matter. So why yeah. aren't you working on those things? Why are you wasting time? You know, you gotta, you gotta know your enemy, right? You gotta know your enemy. Yeah. Do, doing this spectacle. So yeah. for the most part, it, it just came down to, you know, to, I needed enough evidence and, and enough reason to, to no longer believe the things I'd been indoctrinated to believe about the United States. And once you have enough to, to destroy that, then you can begin to really question the other things that they've told you is like, are these people really the bad people or were you just demonizing them to me because they were your enemies and you wanted them to be my enemies? There's a there's a great, a great interview with Nelson Mandela that Ted Koppel did shortly after Mandela's release from Robben Island um, that was aired on national TV here in the United States um, where uh, they take start doing the, the segment, the questions from the audience, and they take a question from Ken Edelman, who I believe was some like State Department flunky, so clearly planted in the audience to, to ask a, a certain question. Mm. And he asks the question, uh, Mr. Mandela, and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, uh, you, know, uh, you know, you've spoken out recently that, you know, some of your models for human rights are... Uh, you know, uh, and you've and you've met publicly with these people are Fidel Castro, Yasser Arafat, um, and um, uh, I can't remember the third person you brought up, but some other. Uh, uh, oh, uh, Colonel Gaddafi in, in Libya, mm -hmm. Muammar Gaddafi, uh, and you know, and you applaud their record on human rights, despite the fact that documents of the United Nations and elsewhere show that you know they have a very poor record on human rights, and you know, essentially asked Mandela to explain this seeming incongruency uh, between his his stated belief system and reality as the UN determined reality. And Nelson Mandela turns to him and says, "One of the mistakes that many analysts make is to believe that their enemies should be our enemies." You know, we have our own struggle, which we are conducting. 
Mm. And it goes on to say that those people, you know, Castro, uh, Gaddafi and Arafat have supported their struggle, uh, he says, to the hilt. And, um, you know, not just in rhetoric, he says they've placed resources at our disposal to actually help us in this struggle. And this is in he doesn't say this, but that that uh, is in contrast to in the United States's position, which was, uh, you know, supporting South Africa until it was politically unfeasible to do so and keeping Nelson Mandela on their terror wa terrorist watch list until 2007, mm -hmm. uh, which is just ridiculous. Um, so like, again, like judge it's it, a lot of it was just in getting over judging people by words and judging people by actions instead, and actually seeing what, the, what the actual actions are. And so, you know, once I lost all faith in the mythology of the United States that I had been given to believe, I then was much more, uh, ready to accept, uh, you know, political truths about mm -hmm. Marxism, Leninism, that would have been unthinkable had I still been laboring under those same delusions. Another good way to explain it is actually, um, and this is going to be a cliche to any academic, because I think this is the most cited work of the 20th century, but there's a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. It's by Thomas Kuhn, K-U-H-N, and it is a, it's a book on the philosophy of science. And the essential principle of it is that science is not this noble search for truth where everyone is perfectly objective and only interested in, in being right and advancing the, the human cause and our understanding and knowledge of the universe. But it is in fact a, 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 an act done by humans and it has the, the same qualities of humans. It has bias, uh, you know, it, it has, uh, you know, clickishness and, and all of these things. Um, and the, and the reality bears that out. And so what he talks about as a, uh, he talks about science as, as a, as a succession of paradigms where, you know, based on historical events, a paradigm is established and that's the, the set of accepted knowledge or the accepted theory for a certain phenomenon. The example he uses is, um, uh, our model of the solar system. And so that, uh, there's one of the main ones early on in antiquity is the Ptolemaic system, which is, a, of course, um, uh, geocentric. Mm -hmm. um, and what happens is if the paradigm is wrong, so once the paradigm is established, no one is really allowed to go outside of the paradigm because that you get labeled a sort of crackpot and, mm -hmm. and nobody listens to you. And that's true now. And it's actually edified within the scientific community because of funding. You can't do things that the people with money don't want you to do. So mm -hmm. they set the paradigms. And if you're not willing to work within the, the, those paradigms, then you just don't get to be a professional scientist unless you can self-fund. Um, and, and so, uh, it, but if the paradigm is wrong, eventually the, the data, uh, you know, keeps coming in and, and that's the, the chisel keeps chipping away at, at the accepted paradigm. Uh, and you keep having to come up with more and more ridiculous alterations to the paradigm to make it true. And with, with the Ptolemaic system, what happened was that the initial um, uh, theory was geocentric with uh, circular orbits around the Earth. And obviously that's not true. And as our observations got more and more accurate of the actual solar system, there started to be deviations between the accepted model and the and reality. And so they, they created a system of epicycles. So uh, orbits within orbits, 
Um, so you'd have like the one planet moving around the sun in a circle, but it would also be moving around uh, uh, in another circle. Uh, so sort of parametrically. And they had to add more and more and more of these epicycles as our data about the solar system got better. And eventually it creates a period, a revolutionary period where the paradigm gets rejected. And then there's a period of time before a new paradigm is instituted. Uh, and of course that was the, the Copernican paradigm that, that gets instituted and a, a uh, heliocentric model of the universe. So it, it, it reposits our understanding of science as you know, a very um, social one, and that was true in, in what I, my political endeavors. Like, I initially had a paradigm that was established inside of me, and I had to chip away at it, and I did chip away at it as I gained more and more knowledge about the subject. Uh, I just, and as I learned more, it just became more and more obvious that what I thought was true was not true, and it eventually, you know, goes away, and then you've got to find a new paradigm to to uh, um, to take its place. And those periods, uh, those revolutionary periods are sort of anything goes periods. You don't, you're not burdened by any accepted wisdom and you get to just explore freely. Uh, and that's what I was able to do politically and, you know, came up with Marxism Leninism. Excellent. I want to just kind of, uh, make sure that uh, we end on a, a good note, which you have, which is like, you know, basically exploring your, your, your beliefs and uh, where can people find you? What's the best place for people to find you online or on social? The best place is, is on Twitter. I'm at Ross Hunnids, uh, which is an old inside magic joke. Uh, it's been really played out. I think I'm going to change that soon, but it's R-O-S-S-H-U-N-N-E-D-S. Basically the only social media I really maintain. I keep my Facebook more private. I'm not on Instagram or anything like that. Uh, but you know, it's a good place to keep abreast of my magic goings on. Uh, but I also do, you know, tweet out about a lot of other things. It's a, a good place to ask me questions. I keep my DMS open. I reply to people, not all the time. It usually depends on the tone that they come at me with. Um, <laughs> but if, if I feel you're asking me an earnest question, I will give you an earnest response. Yeah. Uh, that, that's all I can say. So, um, that's the best place to find me, uh, and really the only public place to find me. Excellent. Well, Ross, thank you so much for your time again. And uh, I wish you have a, a wonderful rest of the day or evening where you are. Yeah, thank you. I, I honestly, I can't believe it's already 1130 and, and we've been doing this for so long. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like that much time. <laughs> well, when we're, talking about, when we're talking about topics that we, we enjoy and that I enjoy hearing you talk about, I mean, it's, uh, it's fairly easy that way. Yeah, it doesn't feel so, so much like a chore, I hope. <laughs> yeah and, and you know I, I as i said before we started recording i love talking about myself so i could i could certainly go on for another few hours <laughs> right on thank you for listening to this episode of humans and magic to get other episodes or to get details on the humans of magic book please visit humansofmagic.com that's humansofmagic.com we have all the past archive episodes. You can also find and subscribe to Humans and Magic on SoundCloud, Spotify, and all the places you find podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.